people can do radical things when they believe something is unjust. People can go to extreme measures when they believe something is unjust. People donate money to candidates because they think their candidate will govern with the best sense of justice. Whether you are a congresswoman from Georgia or a congresswoman from New York and everywhere in between, everyone has their sense of what justice is. And at least a politician's stated reason for getting into office is to increase justice in the land. We all have this innate desire to see justice reign. Some people might squash it down. Some people might self-justify. Some people create their own view of justice. Really, all of us do. But it's clear that whatever one's perception of what just is, that is their reality. And some people are willing to go extreme lengths to see justice carried out. Uh, Consider the recent law in Canada of euthanasia. Where even if someone is, has a mental illness like depression, they can apply to be euthanized. Or consider the Taliban retake over of Afghanistan. The Taliban in large part doing that because they think what they're doing is just. Think of the Twin Towers being attacked nearly 21 years ago. That was done because they felt like injustice was going on and they were the operatives to correct what was unjust. What about your view of justice? Where does it come from? How do you create it? What are you pulling from? Well, if you're a Christian, you should, you should hopefully say from the scriptures. And so from the scriptures, we can see God's view of justice. In Isaiah 42, we get to see a little bit of what God thinks of justice and, and, and what he does with it. As God is continually revealing to us through the prophet Isaiah, his chosen servant who brings justice, true justice to mankind. Now, since we're jumping back into Isaiah now for the second week, let me just give a little bit more of a background of Isaiah And while I'm doing that, someone can find for me the page number of Isaiah 42 in the Pew Bible. I appreciate that. Page 602, Isaiah 42. Thank you, Mike. Matthew Henry, uh, the Puritan uh, expositor, and uh, has this large commentary. And and on Isaiah 42, he says this. Before God sent his people into captivity... He furnished them with precious promises for their support and comfort in their trouble. And we may well imagine of what great use to them the glorious, gracious light of this prophecy was in that cloudy and dark day. And how much it helped to dry up their tears by the rivers of Babylon. So as I stated last week, and what Henry's saying here is that Israel and Israel and Judah are going to, particularly Judah, but let's just say Israel, they're going to be captured taken captive by the Babylonians. This prophecy is given before that captivity. So if you're an Israelite, you're receiving this, this prophecy, you're kind of like, oh man, it's going to get really bad. 
if you're believing it. But then God provides them comfort. So in some ways, they're taking this comfort with them before they're taken captive in order to help them continue to have hope during their captivity. Further background, and I think this is important. That's why I'm saying it. I want to get into the Bruce Reed stuff, but check this out. Israel's history is full of conflict and some aspects of faithfulness, but much faithlessness. Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. In 722 BC, so children, that's about 2,700 years ago, all of the northern kingdom was exiled to an empire called Assyria. Then roughly 120 years later, in the year 597, King Nebuchadnezzar, a different king from a different empire called Babylon, came in and he took the leaders of Israel and particularly King um, Jeho- Jeho- Jehoiakim and some noteworthy citizens of Babylon. So he took them, they were out of king, and then 10 years later, Nebuchadnezzar went back in to Jerusalem and to the territory surrounding it, and he took the rest of the people. And there was much suffering, much death, starvation, and other things at the hands of the Babylonian captivity. To get a sense of the distress this caused, you can read the book of Lamentations. That might help you understand how distressing this was for God's people. But now... (laughs) In our text, God is providing comfort so that when they are in exile, they don't give up in hope, but they continue to hope against hope. The situation looks dire, but God has provided hope. So let's read Isaiah 42, found on page 602 of your, of your pew Bible. Isaiah 42. This is kind of the second book of Isaiah, the book of the servant. Isaiah 42, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick. He will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. 
Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and the dry and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They have turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are gods. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as a servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake, to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for this time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger, and the might of battle is set him, is set him on fire all around. But he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Amen. In our text today, we're going to see that the Lord's true servant brings true justice. The Lord's true servant brings true justice. So we're going to look at it in, in three parts. First, we're going to look at the old servants. I'm going to take a little uh, preacher creativity here. I'm going to start there in verses 18 to 25, the old servant. And then we're going to look at the new servant, verses 1 to 9. And then we're going to look at a new song, verses 10 to 17. Old servant, new servant, new song. Well, this is the middle section of Isaiah. And in chapters 40 to 53... The word servant is used 20 times in the singular. So you have to be a careful reader to understand which servant he's talking about. 11 of those times the word servant is used in this section of Isaiah. 11 of those times it's speaking about Israel. One time refers to Isaiah the prophet and eight times refer to the servant of the Lord or the person of Christ. 
Verses 18 to 25, they're speaking of Israel as God's servant, but not a faithful servant. So this is the old servant. Verse 18, as you see here, is a call to the nations. So verse 18 starts out with the nations. So that is everyone who is not Jewish. And it's a call to those who are deaf and blind that they might behold God's servants. So just picture the Babylonians, the Assyrians, all around. And the prophet is beckoning them to behold God's servant. Not the Messiah, but Israel. It says to the nations, hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Well, the obvious problem, if you're deaf, you can't what? Hear. And if you're blind, you can't see. God is using poetic language to point to the realistic spiritual state of the people in the world he created. Israel's blind and deaf. And the nations who are blind and deaf are called to behold the servant of God, Israel, who is also blind and deaf. Now, we can see that in verse 24, uh, it clarifies just who this is, that this is, uh, look at verse 24, who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunders. Well, from Jacob, we have the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel is sometimes referred to as Jacob. And in verse 20, they see... What they, um, but not what they should see. So they have open ears, but they cannot hear. We also see in this text that the Lord was pleased. It was, his, it was out of his pleasure and his delight that he would make his law glorious to them. God enjoyed giving him his teachings. And the, ma- the nations were meant to look and to behold the servants. And not see a servant blind and deaf like them, but to see the light of the, of the God, of God come through them. And that's just not what happened. You see, what was meant in Israel and the center in Jerusalem and the temple, the nations were supposed to behold and see how good and gracious and full of steadfast love the God Yahweh is. Unlike their mute and deaf gods made out of hands. But this purpose was never accomplished through the nation state of Israel. Instead of the nations coming and submitting to the will of the Lord, the very opposite took place. The nations actually forced Israel to submit to them. Do you see the irony here? The nations aren't submitting to God. They had no pointer. Israel failed at being a light to the world. They had no distinction from the world. Israel had corrupt kings, corrupt priests, false prophets, just like the other tribes and dynasties in the world. They're no different. I wonder about you if you've had a church experience that sounds very similar to this. Your church experience, people just look just like the world. It's often a critique of the church. Whether it's a fair critique or not, this is the idea going in uh, in Isaiah 42, in in the last half, 18 to 25. There were faithful Israelites, though. And from the Bible, a number of the remnant grew. We get that in in 2 Kings. Uh, But verse 25 is just a proof of that. So if you ever wonder what happened, is there anyone faithful? 
Uh, just, just look at verse 25. It's very subtle, but you see it here. That's not the right verse. Look at verse 24. Isaiah asks a rhetorical question. Uh, was it not Yahweh against whom we have sent? So Isaiah is including himself in that. And then he switches to third person plural. In whose ways they would not walk. And whose law they would not obey. So it's, it's subtle there, but it's, it is all kind of sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. There's always a faithful remnant. Isaiah is counting himself as a sinner. But not one who would disdain the ways of the Lord. And in verse 25, uh, they did not obey. So what did God do? He poured out his just anger, the heat of his anger and the, the might of battle on them through the Babylonians. The light of the world became an offense to God and overtaken by this pagan nation with this pagan king, King Nebuchadnezzar. Israel at, point, at, at points in their history, they enjoyed seasons of faithfulness. But that's not the main story, is it? If the light, and here's a problem, if the light has gone out in Israel, what hope do the nations have? What hope do the nations have? What hope does Babylonians and Assyrians have if the light has gone out of God's chosen people, Israel? What makes a distinct servant? What makes someone stick out from the nations is a right view of justice and a right view of righteousness. And Israel did not do that. Isaiah says in the beginning portions of Isaiah that they took advantage of widows. God's own people set out for his purposes. When one of their husbands would die in the battlefield or die of natural causes. Customary for the leaders of Israel to take advantage of widows. They also took advantage of orphans. Those who are fatherless and without mothers. They didn't uphold the Ten Commandments. At a time, they didn't even know they had Ten Commandments. They were buried somewhere in the treasury. As Isaiah says, they've become sick with sin from their head to their toe, from the top of bottom. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For those of us on the other side of this story... For those of us under the new covenant, the warning here is still for us. We need to look carefully as we walk, not as unbelievers, but as believers. Israel, though they were warned time and time again through prophets, they lingered in their sin. And brother and sister, do you have ongoing sin that you just kind of linger in? and just sit in it. If you do, you're presuming upon the grace of God, much like Israel did for much of their history. If you have an attitude maybe like this, God is love and, and it's kind of his occupation or it's in his business to just overlook sin. You know, I've got my ticket to heaven. I'm fine. He'll, he'll be fine. And you don't take sin seriously. Brother and sister, you should be warned right now of the seriousness of sin. Do not presume upon his future mercy. It seems that's what Israel was doing. May the history of the Babylonian captivity send chills down your spine if that is your attitude towards sin. 
The plundering and looting of the Babylonians were real, but it served to point a greater and more severe reality that Israel and all people are held captive by sin. We are trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. We are in the dungeon of sin unless someone comes and breaks us free. And one sign that we're trapped in sin is complacency in sin. Now, I imagine if you're, if you're here, you're part of this church, maybe you're a Christian and part of a different church, you might say to yourself, well, there's no serious sins that I'm aware of. When's the last time you did self-examination of your heart, like we read about in, uh, in the beginning of our service, in our article of faith on sanctification? Um, Jerry Bridges, in his book, Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. He says he wrote the book because he was looking at conservative evangelicals, and this is what he says on, about his motivation for the book. It stems from a growing conviction that those of us whom I call conservative evangelicals may have become so preoccupied with some of the major sins of, of society around us that we have lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined and subtle sins. So maybe you're not going out and bombing places or murdering people or throwing rocks from bridges or whatever. But have you looked at your own heart and wrestled with subtle sins? And these are the sins he, he gives in his book. And ask yourselves, in your workplace, fathers in your home, wives with your husbands, friends with your friends, do these sins come out of you? Ungodliness, anxiety, or even frustration, discontentment, ingratitude. Do you just kind of grumble through life? Pride. Do you think about yourself when you walk into a room first? Or do you think about others? Selfishness. Lack of self-control. What about what you eat or what you drink? How much you consume? How much Netflix you watch? Impatience. Irritability. Anger. The weeds of anger, he says. Judgmentalism. Envy and jealousy. Sins of the tongue like gossip. And slander and worldliness. Friends, go through these and ask questions of each. When we're, one of the signs of God's judgment is not realizing the weightiness of sin and tolerating these so called respectable sins. The more you tolerate it, one sign of God's judgment is that He gives you over to it. And that is a dangerous place to be. The worst kind of captivity is not being behind physical bars, but being locked in sin. So that your perception of your life becomes your reality and you can't see what everyone else sees. As one author says, unrepentant sin locks us up and then throws away the key. If Israel is the old, indistinct, unjust servant... Friends, we are in need of a new servant, aren't we? 
We need a different servant to call us to behold our God. If Israel failed to be a light unto the nations, how will God keep his covenant promise for his people? Look at verses 1 to 9. 1 to 9, a new servant. A new servant who is distinct from the nations. Brian Russell, a commentator on Isaiah, said that the Hebrew word for servant means a person at the disposal of another. Someone to carry out his will, to do his work and represent his interests. So when you think of the word servant, think about one carrying out the will of another. And particularly in this portion of Isaiah, think about one meant to carry out the will of Yahweh. I am who I am. You see, God has a will for his servant to carry out. Israel was not a faithful servant because they did not carry out his will, which is to bring forth true justice to the nations. So look at verse 1. We're all of a sudden told to behold the servant. But the servant isn't Israel. Look at verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And, and keep your eyes on the text here. That word justice is repeated. Look at verse 3. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And then look at verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. God cares about justice. More than you do, more than I do. And this is not justice as defined by me or defined by you. Or in the, in the world. This is not justice defined by social justice warriors or by the moral majority or Democrats or Republicans or socialists or libertarians. This is justice as defined by God, which is justice for God. Friends, don't let other people tell you what justice is unless they have their Bible open in front of them. J. Alec Moyder says this about justice. Justice is the Lord's truth and the truth about the Lord. Justice is the Lord's truth and the truth about the Lord. Brian Russell says this, the restoration of his plan for a just and righteous order on earth, which sin is disrupted, which sin disrupted. That is God's aim at restoring justice. The restoration of his plan for a just and righteous order on earth, which sin disrupted. So we're going to kind of use those two ideas of justice. But just consider this, whatever is just is whatever, whatever is true and whatever God has declared in his word. So back to verse 1. God delights in this servant. Unlike how he felt toward his servant Israel, this servant feeds God's soul with joy. Do you see what's going on there? God takes delight in the servant. So consider the transfiguration before Peter, James, and John. Jesus' face is shone like the sun and his clothes become white as light. And then Moses and Elijah appear. They're talking to Jesus. And Peter's over there, and he says, hey, I have an idea, Jesus. Let me make a tent for you and for Moses and for Elijah. And in Matthew 17, it says, as Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
God is saying, yeah, I sent Elijah, I sent Moses, but this one, my soul delights in this one, this Jesus. God delights in Jesus. The Father delights in Jesus. Jesus delights in the Father. The Spirit delights in Jesus. The Spirit delights the Father. The triune God is full of pleasure. In Michael Reeves' book, Delighting in Eternity, he says, Indeed, in the triune God is the love behind all love, the life behind all life, the music behind all music, the beauty behind all beauty, and the joy behind all joy. The Father sends the Son and delights in the Son. And look at verse 1. Further evidence that this servant is indeed divine. I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. Friends, is this not what we see of Jesus? Who even as an adolescent, the spirit was on him. And Luke says he was growing in wisdom. When Jesus went down to the waters of the Jordan River for his baptism, the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father delights in the servant. Friends, Jesus is a servant, the chosen servant of God, in whom the Father's soul delights. He is the one who will reverse the curse brought about by sin and bring justice For God and his purposes to the world. Now look at the qualifications of the servant. Two main qualifications here. His humility and his perseverance. So look at verses 2 to 3. To see the humility of the servant. First of all, he is humble because he won't cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. The Lord's servant doesn't want publicity for publicity's sake. He's not power hungry. Though Jesus physically healed many people, too many to count, and though he used his power to cast out demons, he wasn't waving a banner because of that ability. His focus was on the task of preaching the gospel of the kingdom, not on his divine power. Jesus did not promote himself or or wear a sign that says, hey, guys, I'm the Messiah. The only sign he would get is at the end of his life when the Jews mocked him. Or the Romans mocked him and said, hail Jesus. This is off script. What does it say? Someone help me out here. King of the Jews. There you go. I don't know. Does it say hail Jesus? Okay. Well, it says the king of the Jews in a mockery tone. That's the only sign that Jesus ever wore. It was given to him in a mockery fashion. One author said that Jesus did not want to be known as a wonder worker or an aspiring king, but rather a lowly savior who had come to suffer and die. Friends, Jesus, in his ministry, he was not ostentatious. He was not bombastic. He did not strut around showing off his gifts and powers. This is the Lord's servant. I wonder what you would do if you had the ability, that kind of power to to cast out demons left and right. If you had the the power of creation in you. I wonder how you would use and probably abuse your power. What if someone offended you? Would you make them mute? What if you don't want to hear what they what if you don't want to hear 
What if you didn't want to hear? Would you make them deaf? Jesus had all this ability, and though in his own divine wisdom, he did this on a couple of occasions, his mission was to be a servant who suffered and was crucified. His humility is also seen there in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Though a king, the servant also has a meek and this unthreatening ministry. He doesn't look upon sinners, even the chief of sinners, even tax collectors and prostitutes, and say, you guys are useless to my purposes. He's humble. He's approachable. That even bruised reeds and smoldering wicks on candles would not be put out by him. Church, this is a good news for us. Even when you're more characteristically a bruised stem of a plant in your yard rather than a cedar of Lebanon, he doesn't cut you down. He does not cast you off when your faith resembles a broken or scorched garden plant rather than a California red oak. He doesn't quench you when your faith is better characterized by a faintly burning wick than the wildfires of Arizona. That's not what he does. In humility, he comes and he actually makes the smoldering wick brighter. He restores the bruised reed. He refuses no one because they're weak. He doesn't cast off anyone because of their past sin. Richard Sibbs, in his book, The Bruised Reed, says this, Christ refuses none for weakness of parts, that none should be discouraged, but accepts none for greatness. How unlike the world is that? When you build your resume, you try to make yourself look what? Good. Hireable. Jesus says, you don't need to do that. I'm accepting of you. Friends, there is so much mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. All he asks is that we turn from our sins and trust in him. Turning from your sins looks like this. The initial way is to admit that you are a sinner and that you need a savior. And if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That is good news for those of us who are sinners, which is everyone. Richard Sibbs says that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There can be no danger in thorough dealing. It is better to go bruised to heaven than sound to hell. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, let me encourage you to consider Jesus, the lowly servant king. Come to him. See him there crucified for sinners like you and me. And see the empty tomb where he rose from the dead. He will accept you if you come to him with lowly faith. Verse 4 talks about his perseverance. So the servant is humble and he also perseveres. Which I think is an often neglected idea or often neglected characteristic of Jesus. 
Look at verse 4. He won't grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. He persevered. He never gave up. He was strong through faith till the end. He completely did the will of the Father. Trust in him, weary Christian. When you feel like you're about to give up in perseverance, when you are tired, it's not yourself that you should look at. It's to Jesus. Richard Sibbs again says, From our own strength we cannot bear the least trouble, but by the Spirit's assistance we can bear the greatest of troubles. Friends, you can do that. Talk to the older saints around here. Ask them, hey, can you just tell me some ways where you felt like you were barely holding on to faith and yet God held you fast? There's a lot of wisdom to learn from older saints, brothers and sisters. But if you're a Christian and you're just feeling downtrodden today, just know this about who you are. Yes, Jesus, yes, God says that we are soldiers, but remember, soldiers get wounded in battle. We are farmers, 2 Timothy says, but farmers get discouraged with the bad harvest. We're athletes, but athletes have poor performances. And so faith in Christ, when we are weak, looks like going to him so that he can strengthen us. This faith in Jesus Christ, this Christianity is one where the weakest among us are never casted off. And yet we're all encouraged to be stronger. And yet at the same time, we never look at someone down on someone for being weak. Where in the world will you find a people like the Church of Christ, where we're not discounted for our frailty and at the same time we're not exalted because of our strength? All glory is given to the Lord's servant, Jesus Christ. Quickly, let me just go through verses 5 to 9 as we see the task of the servant. God kind of putting a stamp of approval on it here. God's the one saying, I created the heavens and stretched them out. I spread out the earth and everything that comes from it. And I give breath to the people and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh. Now he's speaking to the servant. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. The light that Israel did not provide is going to come through this servant. And God will see to it that all his purposes are accomplished through him. And look at verse 7. He will do it. This is what he will do. He will open the eyes that are blind. Before Christ, friends, we are all blind to seeing truly who God is. He will bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Before Christ, we are imprisoned in the darkness of sin, and we couldn't see the light and behold the beauty of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God will do a new thing, and he will do it through the risen Lord Jesus Christ, his servant. Jesus is himself the covenant, the promise that atoning blood for you will always be sufficient to save an unjust people, to save lawbreakers like you and me. And because of Jesus, we have every confidence that the Father loves us. 
The Father delighted in Jesus. The Father, Christian, now delights in you. Consider, Christian, if this is how Jesus treated, this is how God treated you while you were a sinner, how much more confidence do we have that he treats us well now that we are in him? So while we were rebels, while we were in darkness, he looked upon us and out of his love, he saved us. How much more confidence do we have now that we are his beloved children? Consider, if you've ever been depressed, was he not faithful to you in your depression? Was he not, in a sense, maybe weakening you so that you might behold more of his beauty? If you've ever been persecuted, did he not turn your heart to be more like his, that you might pray for those who persecute you rather than seek out vengeance? Consider all the unmet Yet good desires you have in your life, maybe to have children you don't have, or a spouse, or a career, or a job, or the family you never had. The father and mother he never gave you, but you always longed for. Even in those unmet good desires, his steadfast love, brother and sister, is all upon you. Consider the loss that you have, the grief, the loss of a a mother or a father or a sibling. Friends, even that for the Christian is under the banner of the steadfast covenant love of God as proven in Jesus Christ, the righteous servant. As Richard Sibb says, Oh, happy are we if the hurricanes that ripple life's unquiet sea have the effect of making Jesus more precious. Better the storm with Christ than smooth waters without him. This church is full of brothers and sisters that can testify to this truth. It is supernatural, friends, if you have this truth. If you can look back on your life and say, as we just sang about in Christ's assurance to the anchor, I am better for the storms. And if you're in one right now, hold on to this hope. That God loves you. Have every confidence because Jesus Christ has died for you and has risen from the dead in weakness and in power. That is our Lord. But lastly here, as we conclude, now Christians are to sing a new song. Those who behold this servant now are to sing. It's interesting, right? The servants in weakness. He paves the way in weakness and in suffering. And as we see in Isaiah 52 and 53, in death, the wrath of God poured out on him. And yet, we do follow that same path, but now we follow it and we sing. Look at verses 10, at verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise to the coastlands. So it's the idea of being taken, cap 
taken out of captivity in Babylon, marching back to Jerusalem, going to the cities in Judah and Israel, and now singing, not just in Israel, but to the nations, to the coastlands. This is the mission of the church. To sing to the nations about the gospel of Jesus Christ. As John Piper has said, missions exist because worship doesn't. So when we pray for those in Pakistan or Turkey or Turkmenistan or other places, we're doing that because they're not worshiping the Lord. And we go because we want to see other people sing about the goodness of God displayed through Jesus. Moses led his people only so far. Cyrus was a pagan Persian king that came and took over the Babylonians to lead the people back to Jerusalem. Yahweh himself, through the person of Jesus Christ, is the one who does the delivering and now commissions and send his people off to live a life where they display the gospel of the Lord. And friends, in church, Warner Road, we need to be a part of this. This is what this singing is about. And so, have you become a bit placid in your Christian faith? Have you become a bit hopeless when engaging your neighbors? Are you caught in something else, some other drama, and not realizing that what God really wants, that the real drama that God's calling to you is to be a light into the nations? Or do you kind of just huddle in your own Christian circles? Do you have any outlet where you're even exposed to those who don't know Christ? What would happen if everyone gathered together and we were just a light together? Well, the other places remain dark. Friends, going back to politics, the way you vote as political seasons among us the way you vote is minuscule compared to the way that you know and love your neighbor. As the political season comes upon us, don't get sucked into the lie that this is the most important election in the history of planet Earth. They're all important. But this is our ongoing task is to display the glory of Christ to the nations, to our neighbors and in our church, we want to have a specific aim to those who don't know Christ or, have, or rather have no access to him. As we conclude here, if you care about the justice that God cares about, you will center your life around the local church. Particularly a sound local church that takes its authority, not from man's opinions, but from the scripture itself. That's why I do expositional preaching. I don't want you to have authority based on what I say, only based on what I say as it aligns with God's word which springs forth from God's word. If a church is sound, they will consider the gospel of Christ and sing about it, pray it, read, read, read about it, have statements of faith that align with it. And if a church considers the gospel, they will declare it among the nations. If they're really serious about this gospel, if they really believe that this is the only way that man can be saved from eternal punishment in hell, they will sing it among the coastlands, to the nations and to the islands so that others might behold the Lord's servant, Jesus Christ. 
God's servant comforts us and grants us joy and causes our hearts to treasure him above everything else. And this causes Christians to joyfully sing. God, through Jesus Christ, paved the highway of holiness because of the work of his chosen servant in whom his soul delights. And we are now servants of Christ. And we are hidden in Christ. God displaying his light through us. Let us be a church that considers how to shine brighter and brighter and brighter for Jesus Christ. For the good of the nations and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, in our church, work mightily by the power of your spirit. Lord, may we remain a church that exalts in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So lowly, so approachable, and so exalted, and so glorious. Cause us to know him more and more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.